Sarah, there's been something that's bothered me a little bit over the years on on the podcast. What's that, Corey? I'm glad you asked. It actually has to do with affordability, and that's a topic that we've covered a lot over the years on the podcast and, and how that's changed over time, how it's different in different markets. But there's an aspect of this that I wonder, can we be a little bit more precise at different income levels? You know, is there a little bit more nuance to this that, that maybe it's possible to cover? What do you think? That's something that's been on my mind and my team's mind as well. And good thing, because today is just the day to talk about it. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Sarah Hoffman. And I'm Corey Abram. Today, we're going to dig into the the topic of affordability, uh, a topic that we've covered a lot, but we're going to look at it a little bit differently today. And we are joined by perhaps the most common guest on the podcast. Not sure. We'd have to go back and look at the numbers. But Kevin Burke from our research and modeling team. So Kevin, thank you so much for being here today. Of course. Thank you for having me. There's a lot that goes into the measurement of affordability and and a lot of groups that have looked into this, different measures over time, different metrics. Um, so I'd like, before we get into any of the you know, new innovations that, that we're working on and that, that you've looked at, just give us a little bit of a grounding on what's out there today and, and how we frequently think about affordability and measure it. Sure. So there are many metrics around the industry that are used to uh, measure rental affordability. Some of the more widely used ones, um, maybe the single most widely used one, comes from Census. Census, of course, every year collects uh, tons of data on population, uh, on households. And at the household level, they look at rent and income, and they have a metric to compare these two. So it's just the median rent burden for the nation. And of course, they break it out by by a bunch of uh, uh, different geographies. But with that, we're able to see, uh, say, at, you know, at a national level, what the median rent burden is, typically around 30% or so. Uh, and every year, we don't see a whole lot of deviation from that. Uh, even across metro areas, we don't see a whole lot of deviation. Figures generally in the like mid-20s to mid-30s. There are a lot of other you know, metrics out there, um, like from other organizations, maybe like non-government. For example, the National Low-Income Housing Coalition publishes their... Gap report every year in which they look at different segments of the renter population and how the number of households compares to the um, a number of rental units that are uh, available and affordable to them. So for extremely low-income renters, which are the renters making uh, 30% of AMI, they have a pretty chronic, pretty severe shortage of uh, affordable housing. So they're uh, every year, it's it's generally you know somewhere around like 33 available and affordable rental units for every 100 uh, extremely low income uh, households. Uh, so you know, pretty pretty big shortage. Another metric is uh, from the Joint Center for Housing Studies at Harvard. Uh, they look at the number of rental units that are renting for $600 or below, and what they found is that that rate has been slowly declining uh, over the years. The rate back in 2011 was 32%. For the most recent report, it's now at 22% of of, of the rental stock. Uh, so, so that's just some of the most like widely used metrics from around the industry. So, Kevin, we've done a lot of work in-house in trying to understand the affordability challenge. And as you mentioned, there's a lot of uh, industry participants out there who are also trying to grapple this, the the magnitude of this challenge and trying to understand it better, all with the focus that that's where 
housing supply and understand and where they can put their resources to help uh, the affordable housing challenges at those income levels. But what what we're going to talk about here, how is that different or how does it address something that's not represented in those other studies? So a, a lot of the other uh, you know metrics used in the industry are kind of like center of the distribution metrics. They they have you know just like a specific mark that they look at. Uh, you know maybe it's uh, you know looking at renters at a certain AMI level and you know just kind of using that as a cutoff and saying okay yeah at this level you know how many units are affordable how many are not affordable. Um, what we wanted to do is broaden that. So we wanted to look not just at like a single point at a single mark. We want to take that away entirely and look at the entire distribution. So we look at the distribution of rents. We look at the distribution of incomes in a certain geographic area and see how the two compare with each other. You know, for example, looking at the median rent burden from census, like that, that's a great m- metric. I mean, all the metrics that I mentioned earlier, like this is of course not to disparage them at all because they're... Um, you know, great in their own right. I, I've over the years used them many times in, in my research, but all uh, metrics are going to have uh, you know benefits. They're going to have drawbacks. And when we look at census, um, you know, like that certain metric of median rent burden, it, it's really just one number, and that's all you get for you know like a, like a certain metro area. Like if, or if you're comparing like two metro areas, it's just comparing number to number. With the affordability curve, we are looking at the entire distribution um, of, of rent and income and trying to identify different parts of that distribution where some more like pain points are. You know, do we see like large shortages at the very lowest end of the, of the distribution, which, which is very common um, across metros? Uh, you know, but does that continue further up the income spectrum? When comparing two metros or just looking at one you know, metro in, in particular, we're, we're really able to take a deeper dive into how affordability can change across metro, but even within the same metro. So, Kevin, I think we've given you a nearly impossible task today to explain something that is very visual without being on camera and without having any visual aids. So uh, I'm going to make the task even harder. Can you try and help our audience imagine what the affordability curve looks like in a picture. And I know that we'll have a paper out on this and, and people can actually look and, and maybe sort of listen to Kevin's voice talking about the paper as they read it uh, at the same time. But in the event that uh, anybody's driving in their car or, or on the train without the paper, what does the affordability curve look like? I will try my best. So there's two components uh, of this curve. So, um, you know, like I said before, it, it's, you know, everything affordability-wise, we're looking at rent and we're looking at income. So on the horizontal axis, that's where we have the percentile of, of income. And, you know, so that would range from zero to 100. So we're capturing the entire distribution. On the vertical axis, we have the uh, rent percentiles. So, you know, again, from zero to 100. Essentially, the... Uh, affordability curve is kind of like a sinusoidal wave. Kevin, hang on one second. Um, I think I understand sinusoidal curve from like the one stats class I took 20 years ago. Um, but just, like, can we start with just like we've got an x-axis, we've got a y-axis, so we're drawing, we're drawing a graph here. There's some kind of standard 
view of that graph? Like, what's the baseline that we compare this rent and income to? And how do, how do those things come together? So the baseline is, that's the easiest part, because that is just a straight 45-degree angle line. So it starts at uh, you know, the bottom left, so like the zero, zero point, to the upper right of the curve. And what would that line represent? So yeah, that, that's like the baseline, or you know, that's, we can call that like the parity line. So that means that the, at any given uh, percentile of income, the number of units that are affordable at that income uh, is, is exactly equal. So in other words, if you take the, the 40th percentile of income, for example, um, at that parity line means, like if, if you're on that parity line, it means that at the 40th percentile of income, there are exactly uh, 40% of the rental units that are affordable, uh, you know, like to, to that household. So really that line means that there's like an exactly uh, appropriate uh, amount of, or appropriate number of rental units that are uh, affordable to uh, the, like a given population. So that would kind of mean like almost a utopian form of affordability, rental affordability out there. So at any income, you would have enough units to house people that would make that affordable for them. Yes. I I mean, really, truly utopian would be even better to the point where it doesn't matter what your income is. um, You can you could afford any rental unit. Of course, in the real world, that's not practical. So we would call this 45 degree line, we'd call it the parity line. And we'd say that, that, yeah, like that's, that's sort of what you're, you're shooting for. You want an adequate supply of units, um, all along the distribution of renters. So take me through the, uh, rent and, uh, income, uh, distribution on that. So it sounds like what, basically what we're trying to measure here is, do we have enough supply at each level for the income that at, that people are making? I would imagine as you make more money, there's more supply available. But what you're plotting with the affordability curve, it sounds like you're trying to compare rent and income, figure out where there is and is not enough supply for those levels, or in some cases, a surplus. That's right. So at any point below this parity line, that means that there is an inadequate supply of housing that is affordable for that population. So going back to the prior example, if you're looking at the 40th percentile of income, uh, you know, and so that would, by definition, comprise 40% of all renters. Uh, if you're not at 40% of the rental units, if you're only at like 20%, let's just say, uh, so you're you're below the parity line, and what that means is that forty percent of the renters are able to afford only twenty percent of the rental units. So that's of course problematic, in that th- those forty percent of renters, uh, you know, they're not all going to be able to find housing that's affordable to them, and of course they will have to find housing that is. You know, outside of what they can afford, based on the thirty percent assumption, but we do co- very commonly see towards the the lower end of the income spectrum, it is very very common for there to not be an adequate supply 
of rental units. So, you know, let's say at like the 10th percentile uh, of income, uh, if you like it, like across metros, it's very rare that you're going to have 10% of the rental units be affordable to them. Um, really at, at the beginning, at the very like low end of the curve, it is very flat. So like in, in the nation and in the vast majority of metros, there's just not enough affordable housing for those uh, renters at, at the very lowest end of the distribution. Conversely, at the high end of the distribution, renters, let's say that are you know um, at like the 90th percentile of income and above, really have very little uh, difficulty affording rent, uh, affording rent. And so, um, you know, if you're at the 90th percentile of income, pretty commonly you'll be at maybe like the 99th or maybe even the 100th percentile of, of the rental units. So that means that, you know, if, if you're a renter, you're, you're making, uh, you know, you're, you're earning more than 90% of renters, you can afford every rental unit. So the curve at that point is going to be above that parity line. So th- this is a pretty consistent finding. Um, like if we just look at like the national curve, if we look across metros, at the, at the very low end of the income distribution, it's it's pretty flat. Um, you know, it's it's below that parity line. Somewhere in the middle, it crosses the parity line. So you now have a relative surplus of units, and then it, it kind of starts to flatten out again towards the end of the curve and until it you know hits 100% of of the rental units and then you know it's uh, you know so for for the higher income households everything is affordable to them i i won't lie to our listeners i've seen the curve but i'm thinking maybe what we can do is so we we've described the parity line Kevin you described how then the affordability curve kind of takes off from there can can you maybe just in relation to that parity line kind of at the national level um, explain again kind of that that trend. It starts off below and then will eventually come up and intersect. Yes, that's right. So it, it starts at the you know zero zero point. Um, and and again, it's 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 very flat in, in the beginning. So if you're looking, you know uh, up until like the maybe like seventh percentile uh, or so of income, there are really like little to no, rental units that are affordable. Um, I don't know the numbers in front of me, but it's, it's maybe around 1% or so. So at that very low end, you know, very, very big shortage of affordable housing. You know, a little bit past that, you know, the, the curve, it, it starts to catch up a little bit more with that parity line. So I, as you go up the income distribution, uh, it, it, it does get closer and closer until it passes it at about the 60th percentile of income. So that means that in the nation, you know, a, a renter making more than 60% of other renter households, um, yeah, at that point, they can afford 60% of the rental units. And then after that point, really, it, it, it only gets better. So at the national level, we don't see it dip below um, the parity line again, it stays above un- until we get to 100%. So, you know, um, that being the, the the highest earning renter. So, um, so yeah, we, 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 we see this pretty consistent pattern. Uh, so again, where, you know, low end of the income distribution, uh, we're, we're below the parity line. 
at some point it catches up to the parity line. You know, the point at which it catches up at the nation is around 60%. Uh, metro to metro, it can vary a lot. What's really interesting about that when you look metro to metro too is the variation I think you see in shortage of supply uh, at different levels. And right, that, that curve doesn't look the same across the country. It might look different in Kansas City than it does in Boston, right? That's right. So the, the middle section of the curve is immensely different for different metros. So, you know, some of the metros that we highlight in the paper are um, like Oklahoma City. That is a metro that is um, generally considered pretty affordable and, and it shows up as very affordable in our analysis. Um, you know, and, and it's especially for larger metros, it's, it's known as one of the more affordable ones. And so, you know, we talked about how at the nation, the affordability curve crosses the parity line at around the 60th percentile of, of income. In Oklahoma City, it's uh, just before the 40th percentile. So the the smaller that number is, the better, because that means that there are fewer renters who are experiencing a uh, you know, a deficit of of, of housing, like a, a shortage of housing. So contrast that with a metro like uh, Miami, and you know Miami doesn't cross the parity line until past the 80th percentile of income. So the good majority of renters in Miami face an insufficient supply of affordable housing. And so certainly me speaking about it uh, doesn't do it justice. Um, It's pretty striking when you, you know, see the graph and how, you know, at the low end, Miami and Oklahoma City look very similar. Up until about the 20th percentile of income or so, uh, they're like right on top of each other. Um, but at that point, they separate. And the separation is visually uh, very, very large, uh, only to converge again at the very end of the distribution. So in some ways, right, just to to capture that, what you can see when you look across metros is a like near universal shortage at the lower end. Uh, that story is pretty much the same everywhere. The story starts to change as you get higher up the income scale, right, where you start to see some markets more affordable, have adequate supply in, in theory, right, at a lower income level than other markets. Yes, that's right. So we know from the affordability curve that almost all metros start off low, uh, below the parity line, then, then cross over the parity line, typically, and then typically end above the line. This helps solidify that these uh, that there is a greater need at the bottom end of the distribution, which we all in the industry have seen. But besides the intersection point, how does the affordability curve help differentiate affordability challenges across different metros? The affordability curve is very dynamic, and there are many metrics that we can derive from it. Uh, We've talked a good bit about the intersection point, uh, so that's the point at which the affordability curve uh, passes the parity line and we start to have a relative surplus of housing. Uh, That measures the percentage of renters who face an insufficient uh, number of affordable units, but other metrics uh, show a severity. So, for example, we could look at the section of the affordability curve uh, to the left of the intersection point, uh, which is the area you know, with a shortage of housing, and determine how big of a shortage there is. Uh, w- without getting into the math of it too much, 
if the area uh, between the curves is small, then even if the intersection percentile suggests that renters face a shortage of housing, uh, the magnitude of the shortage uh, never really gets to be too bad. Uh, conversely, if the area between the curves is large, then this signals that renters uh, in this segment of the distribution not only face a shortage, but that the shortage is particularly bad. Um, one good example of how these metrics tie together um, to help us paint a better picture of affordability uh, comes from looking at two metros that we examine in the paper. So that's uh, um, Austin and Nashville. Uh, the census median rent burden has Austin as a little bit more affordable than Nashville. Uh, so Austin has a, a median rent burden of 29.2%, whereas uh, Nashville has a median rent burden of 30.2%. So just from that single metric, we might say, okay, Austin looks to be a little bit more affordable. Um, but when we look at the affordability curve, we see that their intersection points are, are not that different. Uh, Nashville's intersection point is a little bit lower, so that signals better affordability. Um, but perhaps more importantly, the severity of the shortage um, uh, you know, in, in Nashville is not as high in magnitude as in uh, Austin. So we can see this from the uh, smaller area between the affordability curve and the parity line uh, to the left of the intersection point. So this signals better affordability in Nashville compared with Austin. Um, but interestingly, the answer still depends on where in the distribution we focus, since Austin does show better affordability at higher income levels. This is a classic Simpsons paradox, it sounds like. Where look at it in one number, it tells you one story, but look a little bit deeper, you get a slightly different story here. That, that's kind of what you're saying about Austin and, and Nashville, thanks to the affordability curve. Yeah, so I, I mean, really, with the affordability curve, we're, we're we're trying to just take a you know a deeper dive into affordability, and you know maybe expose some patterns that um, you know we, we we haven't really seen before and, and and can't really be seen with conventional metrics. So, Kevin, we talked a lot about the percentiles of income. Is there a way to translate this into AMI or the area median income? Because that's kind of the language that we all speak when we think of affordability. Yeah, so all of these certainly can be converted uh, into AMI. Um, you know, we, we, we can look at the graph in terms of, you know, maybe not, okay, income uh, percentiles and rent percentiles, but really just, um, you know, plotting AMI and saying, okay, you know, what at each AMI level, what is the, you know, relative um, surplus or shortage of, of units? And so... When we look across metros, and we've said before about how you know at the low end of the income distribution, metros look the same. When we convert it into AMI, um, you know n none of the trends are, are really different. Uh, we're, we're more of just kind of standardizing it to um, to an industry standard. And so, uh, you know, looking at uh, like the graph of, of AMI, we would see that metro like Oklahoma City. Would, would break even at around 50% of AMI. And so when I mean break even, I mean, you know, kind of like going back to the intersection point we were talking about before. So the affordability curve would pass the intersection point at the 50th percentile, or I'm, I'm sorry, at 50% of AMI. Um, the nation would be a little bit higher. So it, it would, uh, the intersection point would be at 70% of AMI. 
And then going back to Miami, there we 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 still see that there is a a large, uh, you know, even at seventy percent of AMI, that's actually the point in Miami at which the gap of uh, you know uh, renters and 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 the units they can afford, uh, that gap is the largest at around seventy percent of AMI, and Miami does not you know, get into like positive territory. That is like, it doesn't hit the intersection point until 130% of AMI. So, so, you know, everything with affordability curve, you know, certainly can be converted into AMI terms. That, that point about Miami and and AMI, I think is, is very telling because it, it really pinpoints when you think about where you need to add supply to the market or where you need to look at, at rent preservation the most is not necessarily in sort of the classic AMI levels that you might think of, like 30% or 60% AMI. There's a real need uh, just a bit uh, up the spectrum there. Yeah, that's right. And so that is, uh, you know, I think one of the other benefits of, of affordability curve is, you know, this, this kind of holistic approach looking at like the whole distribution, we can identify these points at which, you know, the shortages are most severe because, you know, in, in some metros, it's really only at the lowest end, and then you know, like like pretty quickly, you start to see some uh, some surpluses. Um, so, uh, you know, a place like Oklahoma City uh, would be an example of that. Um, and, and and I mean, there's there's certainly some uh, some larger metros that are you know even before fifty percent AMI, uh, they'll they'll reach the intersection point. But you know, there's uh, other metros where you know, yeah, at the lowest end of the income spectrum, there's a lot of stress, you know, but that stress continues. And, and there are times where even like that stress gets worse, you know, at certain pockets, um, you know, that, yeah, maybe even at like 100% AMI, um, there's still a lot of need for affordable units at that point. So, Kevin, a curveball question for you, if you will. What was the most interesting or shocking finding that you got from doing this report? Maybe the most surprising finding was seeing just how different metros were, like really how different they were, uh, you know, kind of in the middle part of the distribution and how similar they are at at the ends. Um, You know, because you look at some other metrics that are more of just kind of like, you know, single number, like, you know, center of distribution, and you don't really see like that big of a difference. And like, you know, just with, um, you know, like, a, like limited data like that, you, you can't really tell a whole lot of like, <clears throat> you know, differences uh, across metros. But, you know, to see that a, a, a place like, you know, Oklahoma City, or, you know, a place like Pittsburgh, or, or Cincinnati, like these, these metros that are generally considered to be more affordable, behave in a really similar way as Miami or Honolulu, you know, like these metros that are, are generally considered to be, you know, not very affordable, like, you know, but only certain parts of the curve. So like only at like the beginning, only at the end of it. And then, you know, in the middle, there's just this enormous chasm. And in some of these less affordable markets, you know, you, you hear like news stories about them and, and just kind of, you know, being in the industry, you, you know, what's, what areas are, are considered more affordable, which ones are considered less affordable. Uh, but just to really see that visualized on the curve, um, just some of the stark differences I thought were, were a little bit surprising. 
Yeah, I tend to agree with that because, like you said, we can see a number and you can see kind of where affordability or rent burden falls out across metros, but to actually see the curves and how differ, how much they can differ, um, I thought was really shocking when I reviewed and read the paper. Ultimately, the goal of the affordability curve is to take a deeper dive into affordability and uh, help industry participants understand affordability challenges better across the nation. Uh, and, and there's a lot that, that goes into the curves, um, you know, a lot we did to, to try to make them as, as accurate and comprehensive as possible. Um, you know, in the paper, we talk pretty in-depthly about, um, you know, bedroom adjustments and earners adjustments. Um, we also take into account uh, cost of living differences between areas. Um, so, you know, really, we, we, we wanted to introduce a, a new metric that takes a holistic approach uh, to really understand this important issue better. Kevin, thank you so much for for explaining the affordability curve and for doing the work. I think this really shows uh, some interesting dynamics and in what's going on uh, across the country in different markets. Helps us all understand where we have supply shortages, at what income levels we have supply shortages, and I think there's an aspect of this that that uh, you know across the industry and across the the policy world, uh, there's stuff to leverage here to think about where to target uh, target interventions, where to target programs. So a lot of great stuff here. So thank you very much for, for doing the work. Thanks very much for being on the podcast again. Of course. Thank you. The Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast is produced and supported by a team of our Freddie Mac colleagues, including our production leads, Jenny Wynn and Raquel Sands, and audio producer Dalton Okolo. To listen to more and keep up with the latest episodes, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And check out our website, mf.freddymac.com slash research for the full catalog of podcast episodes and original Freddie Mac research.